I'm very excited for today's guests, Andy Skibo and Rob Wright. Andy is the Chief Manufacturing Officer at Flugen. Previously, Andy was the Executive Vice President of Operations at Metamune and Head of Global Biologic Operations and Global Engineering and Real Estate at AstraZeneca, where he affected changes in manufacturing operations, quality oversight, and cross-functional relations throughout the company. Rob Wright is the Chief ed- Editor of Life Science Leader Magazine. Having worked in the pharmaceutical industry for nearly 20 years, Rob provides readers with credible insights. His 500-plus public articles have appeared in peer-reviewed academic journals, B2B magazines, and online publications. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode about Andy's sailing trip, risk mitigation, effective leadership, effective communication, and so much more. We'll get into this episode now. I'm very excited to be here today with my guests, Andy Skibo and Rob Wright. Andy, before we get into the details about your executive leadership, why don't you share a bit about your passion for sailing? I know you've taken an intense trip with some of your family, and I think a lot of what you learned will relate back to the themes that we talk about throughout the rest of the episode. Sure. I'm glad to. The sailing passion goes back to when I was a little kid. I lived uh, near a creek. And I used to build rafts. I'd get uh, old railroad ties, nail four of them together in the spring, and I'd pull that raft across the creek. And the other side of the creek was London. So from the earliest time, uh, I have always wanted to uh, sail across the Atlantic. As I uh, got older, I finally took up real sailing when I got to MIT because they had a sailing team and it was free and someone would give me a boat to play in. And I was on the team for a while. I think I was 52th out of uh, 52 members of the team. So I don't claim to be a great sailor in college, but I always had a boat. I built boats. Uh, when I got married, my wife helped me build my first boat. Uh, she put up with it. I took me 50 years of marriage to figure out she hated sailing, but she was a trooper. <laughs> and uh, as we got into that, I always wanted to do the Newport to Bermuda. I just couldn't take the 30 days it would take to sail across the Atlantic. So I, if you can cross the Gulf Stream and get to Bermuda, you can get to the rest of the way to Europe. So to me, that little, that leg was, okay, if you can do that, you've crossed the Atlantic. So after retirement, uh, it was my 73rd birthday present to, to put some time frame around it. I chartered a boat and I took my four uh, children, three sons and a daughter and a granddaughter. They have all been sailing, but no one had done deep ocean. And we uh, sailed uh, this uh, boat from Bermuda to Newport and then back out. And it was, it was an incredible experience because as much as you technically study what that crossing is about, as much as you do race prep thinking for it, as much as you've been offshore, until you're actually there, you just can't imagine it. Little things like the Atlantic Ocean until you hit the Gulf Stream coming out of Bermuda is not blue. It's a deep, deep purple. And you try and take pictures of it. And I asked, did anyone ever get pictures of this? And the two other folks that we had on the boat with us, uh, a crew of four extra folks, said, no, the only way you can see that purple is to stand here on the deck and look at it. So it's never in pictures, but the ocean is a deep purple. That's one. Uh, Things like, you know, the Gulf Stream flows northeast, 
and the trades blow southwest. So the trades normally blow directly against the Gulf Stream, which causes steep waves as you see it. We happened to cross it on a day where there was a southwest wind, which means that the winds were blowing with the Gulf Stream. So the Gulf Stream is flat as a mill pond. And you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's halfway between Bermuda and Newport when you hit it. So you're, you're about 350, 400 miles from land in either direction. And you're in the normal Atlantic 20-foot waves. And about seven miles ahead, you can see that the ocean is flat. And you sail like over an edge. You're in 20-foot waves, and suddenly you're in a flat mill pond. And as you get to the other side, suddenly you can see, gee, there's waves over there. And as you sail over the edge of the Gulf Stream, you're back in 15, 20-foot waves. It's, mm-hmm. you, you know that will happen, but until you actually see it, it's, it just boggles the mind that this current is out there. Um, you're going to sail through rough weather, so you have to plan on that. We're all used to that. So we had full full uh, you know, foul weather gear. You have tethers. You must be tethered to the boat. We all had personal strokes. We all have personal e-perks. And you've got now almost 35, 30-foot waves. And what is clear is if you go overboard, you're dead because you just can't see. And it's so noisy. Even if you fall off with a tether, you're, there's a quick release on the tether because being towed by the boat will drown. So the tether doesn't do you any good other than to keep you inside the boat. If you actually go off the boat with a too long tether, you may as well pull the ripcord and get out of the tether. That to me was, if you want to worry about risk planning, if you want to know why you don't just take a boat and stick a key in it and drive it offshore, all the thinking that goes into what do you need for the gear and how do you have to think? Where do you put your feet? Stepping over that part of the boat puts you at very high risk. And you don't, you're not panicked, you're not uh, daunted by it, but it makes it really clear about preparing for risk and then living live with a very real risk. Mm-hmm. And then having training people, including your kids, all of my kids were on that boat and one granddaughter. One thing my wife said, if one of them doesn't come back, make sure you don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She said, you're taking your entire family on this, on this trip. In terms of sailing, I think that's such a perfect analogy to everything that you talk about and have experienced in business especially when you said until you're there, you can't really imagine it. So how do you translate that into understanding what leadership and the ups and downs are like? And, and how do you take that leadership approach to risk throughout your career? Yeah. And let's take two pieces of it. One piece is anticipating long range risk. And another piece is being bold enough to take the risks to begin with. Uh, there are plenty of people who are so concerned about risk that they live extremely conservative lives and everything is very predictable, but they don't uh, launch new products in the face of a lot of adversity. So let's do the long-range risk one first. My teams, and I, I one of our key team players was Elizabeth Terminella, head of HR in AZ for our group. She always cautioned me that 
I had to bring teams along is I would, I would hear of a problem or a goal or a task and my brain would automatically jump five, six, seven years ahead to, well, here are the risks associated with this. If we do this, this is what might happen. If we do that, that is what might happen. And this is a little bit like planning for risks in sailing. The message to that is you can be prepared for risks if you think through them. Now, often what happens in business is the risk you anticipate it isn't exactly the one that you you happen upon or that occurs. But looking at what all the pile, like it's it's like 27 dimensional chess, looking at how each of these failures might occur. One, you'll put in place plans that eliminate as many of those risks as you can. And the second thing I find is that when an unexpected risk does occur, the fact that your brain takes for granted that there are risks and you will figure out how to work your way out of them, I think makes makes your nerves calmer when you hit one, especially for sailing, you don't have a choice. You are in a gale, you didn't choose it. You're in the middle of the Atlantic, my granddaughter, deathly ill. The only time she complained, 3 a.m., she said, Dad, I want to go home. And you just have to look her in the eyeballs and say, this is the only way home. Uh, this is it. Uh, you got to get on with it. And I, I think of that risk management, you put in place every possible backstop you can for a product launch and some lightning bolt happens. A CMO supplier has a bad inspection, not related to anything your product did. And actually he, he was not at fault, but inspectors are human. And it was like a product that had to be launched. It turns out to be a multi-billion dollar product uh, for a large company. It had to be launched because there were competitors behind it. It was not an option not to figure this out. And it took six weeks, 20 hours a day, people scattered around the globe and dealing with the regulators, FDA, calmly, not in a panic, not screaming and yelling, because that doesn't get you anywhere with a regulator. I think how you manage risk means a lot to your executive career. It means a lot to your management of teams, because if they see you managing risk well, everyone's blood pressure stays down. The flip side of that is you've got to be prepared to do risk. And what I did is I had job offers from the top four bios, and I tried to do a calculation of which one was farther enough along to kind of reduce the risk of this moving your family and kids and everything else from a crapshoot out to the West Coast, but which one was also not so far along that you couldn't get some personal financial leverage in the firm. And mm -hmm. I picked the family up, three kids, all under the age of six, moved them to expensive San Francisco. I was employed the 174th employee on the Genentech campus, and we figured out how to make it work. Plan for risk, but don't be daunted by it either. I think that is a great thing to point out. Don't be afraid of risk. Don't let that hold you back. And when I think about my young life, I see a lot of my greatest outcomes have come from my risky-er decisions. 
And, you know, going back on a lot of the things that you've mentioned and how they relate to thinking long term and being future focused, you've worked across the industry and spoken about people you've worked with and how that's affected your own career growth. And I think within all that networking and speaking with other executives, you get that 27 dimensional chess view that you mentioned previously. So when it comes to leaders getting that bigger picture, understanding what's going on within their industry and becoming better, why is networking so important and something they should prioritize both within and beyond the industry? Really good questions. And I think fundamentally, a good researcher first figures out where is the technology? What are the limits of the known technology that might be applicable to where I am? You don't want to have to learn for three years what somebody learned 10 years ago. So, so you start there. And in the beginning of bio, maybe it's because I was exposed to big pharma, one of the things that always impressed me as a negative was we were highly technical, technically skilled at bio. Maybe it was because big pharma thought it would never work, but we never thought of reaching across to be, or a lot didn't. We did, our, our team did because we all did it. Reaching across to what was known, what could you learn somewhere else? So just bringing yourself up to speed on what was already known so that you didn't waste time learning yourself. Then you can jump off that platform and look forward. But the other thing with networking is you're not the only team dealing with your type of problem. The problems aren't identical, but there's cross learnings. I'll give you an example of a high level one. Uh, In around 2011, we were all sitting with empty, empty plants. The industry was awash in unused capacity. CFOs pounding you on the head about what to do with this plant that's costing 110, 150 million a year negative run rate. But we all knew roughly what each other's pipelines were. It's public knowledge. You don't trade private information, but it's public knowledge who's working on what products. It's all in the pink sheets. Uh, Clinical trials are, are, are documented. And as we sat there, four or five of us, this is literally on bar cards. We said, you know, our capacities all cross around 2017. By 2017, this excess capacity is all gone. And that is exactly what happened. In fact, it was with a vengeance. Even we didn't predict how little capacity there'd be between 2017 and 2020. And for those of us who absorbed it, we began to put in place capacity sharing networks. One of the key ones, public knowledge, leadership of Merck, uh, bio, uh, Mike Kmark and myself put together a capacity sharing where uh, Merck's team would help us build up the resources of Frederick, the AZ plant. We in turn would launch, develop and launch their products. And it turned out the key one they put in there was Keytruda. So for about four years, we were simultaneously in that plant developing both AZ and FinZ and Merck's Keytruda, both of which compete head-to-head in the I.O. space. But had we not done that, I might not have had a plan to launch AZ products because we couldn't have carried it for five years. Had Merck not done that, they were about three, four years behind the competition and in initial development until that product moved in and it was launched out of, drug substance was launched out of Frederick. Mm-hmm. That all came from a network sitting around 
a dinner in Boston, looking five years ahead and saying, we will have a capacity problem, even if we don't feel it today. So when it comes to moments like that, you've talked about the power of network, but when it comes to communicating that bigger picture, how do you communicate that with CFOs or other senior executives who are knocking on your head, making sure that they understand? And how do you build that long-term you know, system or idea and sell it through effective communication. I know we spoke before about, you know, if it's not said in two minutes, what are we even doing here? And I want details really quick and clear. So how can business leaders provide that value and vision quickly and clearly? To me, the key is, and I had a great coach, uh, it was Kevin Scherer at Amgen. And and Kevin was a bear. And, and if he hears your podcast, uh, it was a great learning curve for me. But Kevin was, if if I don't know in the first two minutes of this meeting why I'm here, I'm leaving. And he would. He would close up his book and walk out the door. And boy, if you were one of those VPs and those presentations who Kevin walked out on, you never made that mistake twice. And the key is... Knowing who's on the other side of the table and knowing what's important to them and how does their brain think. When you're talking to the CFO, he's worried about dollars and cents, launch capability. Those are the two things that matter to him because launch capability generates more dollars and cents in the future. You can explain technology. You can say, gee, it takes five years to build this plant. Gee, we'll never do another one. That's all noise to him. You've got to figure out how do I reduce this curve? And we came up for capacity. We came up with stack bars of our products and and the financial side of the house would know the range of commercial projection for those products. They didn't care how they were made. They would just know what the commercial projections were. So that was what resonated with them. And we tied okay, that product with these yields requires this much capacity. Just stack bar, simple. That one chart became an accepted, you had to explain it the first two or three times, but that became, that single chart would tell you in 15 seconds of looking at it, if you made these product assumptions, that's the capacity you needed. And it simplified hours and hours and hours of trying to technically explain why you needed one more bioreactor, this or that. If you're trying to speak a language that you understand, they'll never understand it. And they get pissed off. Their tempers get short. They're all busy. And once you lose that meeting, you're lost. So it's thinking like the other side thinks. Slides you use for a commercial team are different than the slides you use for a financial team. Slides you use for R&D are more like what we're used to because they want to dive down into the yields and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I think, think like the person you're trying to explain this to and understand that a really, really busy person has a short initial attention span. So basically what you're saying is that communication is a lot simpler than we make it out to be at times that we get in our own head uh, and overcomplicate what is going on. But Rob, I saw you nodding along to Andy's thoughts about communication and I wanted to hear your input as well. So why don't you share that? Well, you were having such a good conversation with Andy that I didn't want to jump in, but I remember Andy and I talking about this, that 
you know, being able to prepare the person on the other end of the conversation to be able to catch the kind of ball that you're going to throw them. So, you know, if you had an alien that came to this planet, you know, and didn't understand baseball, you know, they, they, they don't understand. You have to teach them what the glove and how it works. And I remember Andy and I talking about, you know, how he would think about it. if I'm presenting to the CFO, I need to speak in language that they understand and translate what this capacity means in dollars and revenues so that they are then on board with, you know, costs and everything so they can see the picture. But if you start just uh, using your engineering talk uh, to, to the CFO who, who maybe came over from McKinsey or who knows where, they might not be able to uh, grasp what you're trying to say. And so I always love like Andy would use little analogies to explain things that everybody could understand. And one of my favorites was when he said, you know, when you see a plant running, you want it to run like deep breathing. You don't want it to run like an anthill that has been just kicked over where everybody's scrambling around and with their hairs on fire and so forth. And so I think that's one of the keys to communication is one, you know, uh, Andy and I talked about it where he, he said, you know, he was always taking a, um, a temperature check, for example, of is the person understanding what I am communicating to them, but doing it in a way that doesn't come across as, do you see what I'm getting at? And, and then you're making them feel stupid, but doing it genuinely, like, I want you to make sure you understand so that we are all on the same page so we can all move forward together. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I see that routinely with um, leaders that I get to interview. And Andy's certainly one of the top ones that's able to take these complex manufacturing uh, issues and explain them in a way that the layperson can understand. Those are certainly critical aspects. And then, you know, checking in a way and using whiteboards and different communication techniques. You know, yeah. some people are verbal, some people are visual. I tend to be more visual myself. I love what you both had to say about communication, because at the end of the day, I think it's probably the most important skill that you can learn in business. And it can be very basic things that we think about, but oftentimes we take this selfish, selfish approach to the ways we communicate. And it's more about understanding what the person across from us needs to understand and take away from the conversation. And this is something that I think goes across all industries, which is why I think, you know, conversations with the both of you offer so much value to leaders everywhere. Now, if you think of it, it's, it's an arrogance to assume that all the stuff I know in my world that are very important to me, that this is how I make my piece of the world run well, that you and your field know that, and that's what's important to you. And it's an arrogance of, well, they may not know those details really well. Well, they should. Well, no, that's not what they're paid to. And let me tell you, at the at top executive level, in any given field, whether it's commercial, whether it's finance, whether it's legal, they didn't get there any easier than you did. They're just as smart, they're just as knowledgeable, and think of how it comes across on their side. If you're all down here focused in bioreactor yields and staffing and training, and they're sitting there saying, what part of $110 million a year of negative run rate don't you understand, Mr. Skibo? Being able to communicate 
in their language is not just uh, uh, important to me to sell a point. It's this, it's a human requirement. If you walked into my shop and were just telling me to go do something, but you didn't understand how it impacted my shop, imagine how I'd receive that. Mm -hmm. So I always use a put yourself in the other guys or the other woman's shoes and explain it in things that are meaningful in their universe because that's what they care about. Then once they understand that you know how it impacts their world, if they have questions about what's driving it in your world, then you can have a dialogue. But if you don't start that way, you won't have the dialogue. And basically, it's not even just important to network with people within your own industry, but it's also important to understand what different job titles do to understand their functions and how they operate and can support you. A classic one is you do CAR-T right now. It's in, a, in previous discussions, Rob, we, we, we focused on, to me, CAR-T, personalized medicine, is a combination of bio, because it does have the bio elements, you have to manufacture this, but it's also one of the critical needs is going to be the Amazon-like management of every hour of supply chain. The product is extracted from patient 123, has to do frozen chain to our plant. You have to know exactly where it is and that it never went out of frozen and you have 24 hours, 36 hours to get it to the plant. Inside our plant, it's just like bio. We move that product down the line. It's different in the sense that one reactor run is just one patient, but nonetheless, it's a bio, it's a bio plant. Mm-hmm. When it comes out the other end, that bile has to go back to patient 123. It can't go anywhere else. If we ever make a mistake, we screw up two or three of those vials, the FDA is just going to shut the plant down. They won't tolerate it because of the risk to the patients involved. So there's one where we make a mistake. If we're a CAR-T or a, or a personalized medicine company and we're reaching only to bio-ops, to develop our manufacturing and regulatory affairs. We need both bio-ops and the best supply chain management from these companies that can tell you where your book is that you've ordered in any given hour. Um, so there's lots to learn from the other, many other industries. Well, yeah, and, and as far as, you know, I used to challenge people that if they were a, a biomanufacturing executive and they were at a conference that wasn't necess- that was that had different tracks and different areas, um, you know, like some of the much larger conferences, I'd say, you know, step outside of your comfort zone and attend a, con- a, a presentation that's a little bit outside of your discipline because you might actually learn something. Because so many times when I sit in those conferences where this person sitting in the audience is supposed expert and they, they, they are sitting next to you voicing, well, they don't know what they're talking about. They, they've already tuned out what the message is at the front of the room. And I think they need to get outside of their own world to be exposed to new things, to think about how they might apply them in their world. Um, I know Andy and I have talked about that a great deal over the years on you know, getting people to open up 
their mind to different opportunities because a lot of times they have this preconceived notion we can't do that because you know then you have somebody who asks well why well the fda says they can't and and then andy will start looking through the fda regulations say where does it say that you know and, and you start challenging assumptions and so forth so yeah i think it's really important to network broadly as well as deeply within your your sector because then you can find collaborative opportunities that you might not have thought of otherwise and you raise a good point on collaboration and the regulators if you think of the development of new industries the development of deep tank mammalian cell car t life sciences are there right now we not only had to solve first you have to solve the science can i even make the product you know can i discover an r d a product can i scale it up in development uh, can i get it through clinical trial each of those is new and different requires different thinking then i have to make it that's manufacturing what a lot of companies don't understand is you also have to get it regulated if it's new technology, your regulators are going to be dealing with a world they know. If you adopt the, well, I know everything there is to know about this technology and dear Mr. Regulator, here's how we're going to do it. I guarantee you what you're going to find out is regulator is a big capital R and regulate T is a little two point type word at the bottom. And what we need is a collaborative Here's what's the same about the regulations. You know, we're never going to have non-aseptic products for injection or perfusion. And I don't care how tight the time schedules are. I don't care what uh, personalized medicine or CAR-T requires in time frame. I, the regulators are not going to be talked into after 150 years of issues uh, not having CGMP control over, uh, over uh, injected material. So that's a given. But what you then have to do is work with them. Of Here are the problems in the industry. Here's what it means to patient health. Here technically is how I think the solution can be solved. Mr. Regulator or Mrs. Regulator or Ms. Regulator, from your side, what do you need in this new space to fulfill your role as the guarantor of public safety? Mm -hmm. And that's collaboration. That's not browbeating someone into the solution you want. By God, you're not going to get it. Uh, with, it's like arguing with the IRS. You're not going to get it because they are chartered to, to protect human health as they see it. Mm -hmm. And I, where that works well, that works well. Uh, where that goes off the rails, um, large issues occur. I think that's so important too. You know, at Generis, we host many different summits like the American Supply Chain Summit or the American Automotive Summit, American Biomanufacturing Summit, American CIO and IT Summit. So we have summits across all these different industries and roles, and we have all these different tracks. What has been really interesting to me in the time I've been here is that 
as we kind of evolve, it seems that there is a lot more interest in cross-functional learning. You know, executives coming outside of their role or industry to learn because some solutions that are attributable at the biomanufacturing summit might actually be attributable at the supply chain summit. And I think that is a selling point for a lot of executives, or at least it should be. And I think that is a very valuable offering that a lot of these events and conferences like Generis Produces provide. But I also wanted to tie these issues of risk mitigation into today. You know, we talked a little bit about clinical trials, and so far we've avoided the conversation about COVID. But you and I have talked about how the long-term ramifications of COVID on clinical trials might be something that not a lot of people have thought of. And I'm really curious to hear what your opinions are on this issue and how to mitigate that risk. Perhaps it goes back to my brain cells always go to uh, the risk two years out. And, uh, and as I look at those risks, so one of the, one of the learning curves, a, a different way of looking at it is you do look two years out and say, if this goes south, I make a decision now, two years out, it goes south. Looking backwards from two years out when it has gone south, Will people be able to look at the logic you use today to make the decision and say, with the facts at hand, I can understand why that decision was made? It didn't work out the way we thought, but at least there wasn't something crazy here. That doesn't prevent you from taking these risks, but it often, one, it helps you plan for those risks, but sometimes it does say, wait a minute, there's a really negative downside two years out, if dimension number 23 fails, should I really be doing this? So let's look at, what's that mean in COVID? Um, one of the things that does trouble me is for understandable reasons, there is a lot of hype uh, around some of these COVID uh, 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 development change. You know, we're going to have 300, man, I, there was one in the beginning of April that talked about 400 million units available in August. And so I, I saw, I actually saw the spreadsheet or the, the PowerPoints on it. And you, you sit there and say, you're not even in phase one clinical trial yet. That's not possible. Now, fortunately, that didn't get a lot of traction but we, we do have a lot of big companies with the smaller companies to hype, okay, everyone has to protect their stock and their stock interests. So it's a little more understandable for smaller companies to have a lot of hype. Bigger ones, there's more risk uh, involved in that because not all of these products will work. Not all of them will work well. There's now beginning to be some publicity, which is good, about the first wave of vaccines might not be the best ones. They'll be the best we can get up front, but they might not be the best ones. Will they have a durable response? A lot of the front science is mRNA and mDNA. It's fast science. It's, it's quick to get that piece of protein in the front end, and, and it's quick to develop. Do I or don't I have a clinical response? A second one is, does a clinical response translate into a functional response? That you only are going to learn in, in larger clinical trials. When you are exposed to the real virus, the body reacts to its memory to the vaccine, but it's not hindering the real virus because it's not exactly right. 
the body sees that it's not hindering the real virus. So it reacts even more to the vaccine. And what happens is the immune system overreaction eventually becomes the problem instead of the disease. That, and you can see it now, it's becoming more public. That we won't know in six months. We won't learn that out. We can run 100,000 people in phase three clinical trial, and we won't learn that in the clinical trial. We will only learn that when those people go back out into real life and some of them get exposed to the virus and you find out, do you or don't you have this immune system reaction? Mm-hmm. In the old days where you spent, Merck's Ebola was the fastest ever, five years. In the old days, when you spent two, three, four years slowly proving that, before the public was ever exposed, you'd know that answer. Now you won't. Given the politics of today, it doesn't matter whether it's the U.S. or Europe, there's this piece of anti-science, anti-vaccine, don't tell me what to do. I call it the Gadsden flag, don't tread on me. There could be a, there could be a, a, a strong negative reaction to, gee, all this hype, and the politicians are going to run for the hills. They're all now aligned and everything's cool and we're going to have vaccines by November and December. Boy, if that front end fails, the politicians who are so pro this or that right now are going to run for the hills. That's what they're paid to do. And I worry, will big pharma, especially the vaccine industry, take a real setback uh, because the front end doesn't work quite as easily as we think it might. We know the risks, but John Q. Public, who's desperate for a solution, my family is desperate for a solution to this, just like everyone else. They don't know those risks. The downside, if if this doesn't work exactly the way we're saying it will work, uh, I worry about. So let me add a couple things here. Uh, I was just speaking to an executive yesterday about the manufacturing stuff. Uh, And one thing they commented, and I wanted to correct uh, Andy on something because I got corrected on it myself. I said that Ebola was the fastest ever, and I was on a call with Ken Frazier a while back, and he corrected me and said, no, mumps was faster. You know, the mumps vaccine, they did a little over four years, and then it was Ebola. But, you know, one thing this other manufacturing executive that I was talking about is one of the real concerns is, so what you're doing is you're running a lot of things in parallel, and let's say the first vaccine approved has a few adverse events, but, but maybe they're not clear until they get into a much bigger population. And then if, if that, th- those adverse events tend to be um, uh, more prominent in the larger population, well, when the second better vaccine comes along, we're going to have a skeptical audience of receiving it. And that's a concern too. Well, the first yeah. one wasn't good, very good. How are we going to know this is better? The other thing I think that's important regarding clinical trials that maybe not a lot of people are talking about, but you get 30,000 people to enroll in Moderna's clinical trial. And then you get another 30,000 to participate in J&J's clinical trial. And the other companies that are working on this, 
well, you know, you're not going to have somebody who's also participating in a cancer clinical trial because there's a limited pool of people to take part. So a lot of people are anticipating that in the race to develop this vaccine, we're going to see setbacks in other therapeutic categories because there's only so many people to take part in clinical trials. And because of all the restrictions that are put in place because of social distancing and, and things, it makes it much more difficult for somebody to uh, participate in a clinical trial. So those are some of the uh, the logistic aspects uh, that you're seeing as far as COVID-19's impact on clinical trials and, and drug development and discovery that are going to have a ripple effect for a few years, probably. And I can give you exact examples of that where it's really having an impact is for products developing in the respiratory disease state. Um, I work a lot in influenza. That's what I did for AZ, and I do it now. And some of my consultant, I'm acting as chief manufacturing officer for Flugen, for example. But it's not not the only one. And if you search through clinical trial uh, data sites, you will find clinical trial active but not enrolling. And there are a lot of such clinical trial active but not enrolling in the influenza development space. And it's for exactly the reason that you just highlighted, Rob, especially for respiratory, who's going to be your volunteer patient population? Who's going to be the clinic that runs it? The clinics that run respiratory trials are all running COVID. Um, and it's definitely having a, is it one year? Uh, a one year pushback on clinical trial programs, clinical trials that should have been run in 2020 are not even on the calendar now until 2021. In the influenza space in particular, it's tough because you have to run those clinical trials between the seasons. You don't usually run a, an influenza clinical trial during the actual season. You run it in the off seasons. So you miss it by three months and you miss it by a year. Yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting dynamic of the conversation that I never had thought about when it came to the challenges that the industry would be facing because of COVID. And, and it was definitely a question I wanted to ask you about because you talk about how natural it is for you to think one, two, three years out. And it relates all back to the strategy of risk mitigation that we talked about at the very beginning of this episode. In saying that, I wanted to end off this conversation on a lighter note, you know, talking about your retirement, life as a consultant, and spending more time with your family. So what have your experiences been in that new stage of life? Glad to do it. And probably you just look at the little bits and pieces. I mean, the consulting part in some ways feels like you're still in, in business. Uh, so that's not that different. We were often working from home anyway before. Uh, so that part's easy with this or easier with this COVID. I think uh, if I picked a couple of things, the one thing that I find really enjoyable and mentally stimulating is because in a consultancy, whether it's, and I generally try and work on only strategic issues. I don't do the one hour here and one hour there. I'm either a tech advisor to a board or I'm a member of a couple of boards is you now get an in-depth drill down in four or five companies, not just the one you're in. And, and it's more than just network. Now you're really in-depth drill down 
in four or five companies, but in a related world. So it helps even more to, to glue these various pieces together. The, the Clin trial issue, I wouldn't myself have felt inside AZ because it wasn't a space and influenza that I would have dealt with, uh, but I saw that externally. So that's one. A, a second one on a lighter note is one of the things that I still haven't quite figured out the answer to is you sit there and say, okay, I'd like to work 60% of the time. That, that, that's what I'd like to do. Of course, what we all mean by that is I'd like to work two and a half days straight and then have two and a half days where I don't have any phone calls or any meetings. And the hardest thing is you're working for real companies. There's never just you on that phone call. There's a team on that phone call. Well, if team A wants to meet at 10 o'clock on Tuesday and team B wants to meet at 2 p.m. on Thursday, what happens is you wind up with your 50 or 60% of the time, but it's shotgunned across all five days. And so as far as the family is concerned, you're working five days a week. Mm. And balancing that part was actually one of the more difficult, difficult pieces of the transition. Have you got it locked down now? I've got it a lot. I've got it a lot closer. Uh, <laughs> I, I have Fridays. I've managed to scrape Fridays free. <laughs> so I have, it, have at least that one. <laughs> That's great. Well, Andy, Rob, thank you so much for being here on the Executive Corner podcast. It was great getting your expertise on everything leadership, communication, and risk management. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and using analogies to get your points across. And I think there are tons of tangibles in this conversation that people can apply to their life. And I really thank you for sharing those and that wisdom. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate the backup, Rob. I always do much better on these things if you're there. <laughs> well, I'm your security blanket. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you, everyone, so much for tuning in to this episode of Executive Corner. As I mentioned in the episode, Generis hosts conferences like the American Supply Chain Summit, American CIO and IT Summit, American Automotive Summit, and many, many more. A few of these are coming up at the end of this year, and you can check them all out on our website, GenerisGP.com, where you can get a full list of our events and figure out how to sign up. So I definitely recommend that you go do that. I'm your host, Luke West, bringing you tomorrow's information today, and I'll see you on the next episode of Executive Corner.